0: Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. More than 1.7 million people have now fled Ukraine. As the fighting continues, Russia announced on Monday a limited ceasefire to let civilians evacuate. But it's not as promising as it sounds. The escape routes lead mostly to Russia or its ally Belarus, not the countries where most Ukrainians are trying to seek refuge. And the last time a ceasefire was announced, Russian troops didn't stick to it. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in London on Monday, meeting with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Mark Rutte of the Netherlands.
1: Today, Canada is announcing new sanctions on 10 individuals complicit in this unjustified invasion. This includes former and current senior government officials, oligarchs and supporters of Russian leadership. The names of these individuals come from a list compiled by jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny.
0: These measures are part of extensive financial and travel sanctions that the West has imposed as a punishment on Russia. So what are these sanctions trying to accomplish? And what is Putin trying to accomplish?
1: There isn't some mental health issue that's causing him to lose track of self-interest and rationality. That doesn't mean he won't do horrific things.
0: Doug Saunders is a columnist at The Globe. Today, he'll help us understand what people in Russia are hearing about the war, the two different ways they could react to sanctions, and what Putin might do next. This is The Decibel. (laughs) Doug, thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. I'm going to start with a deceptively basic question, I think. Who is... Vladimir Putin? And what do we need to know about him that would help us make sense of his current actions?
1: I guess there's a debate both within Russia and certainly in the world now about whether Vladimir Putin has been the same leader with the same ambitions throughout his 20-year term of office, or whether this is a new approach to the world, a new hostility. Mm. And I think it's worth looking back a little bit to realize that the elements that you're hearing from him today during this war, they are things that, that you could hear bits and pieces of 10 years ago or even 15 years ago. But the emphasis is different. The ambitions are different.
0: Different in what sense? When you say different, I guess, what are you referring to?
1: Well, Vladimir Putin in his many long addresses to the nation and and speeches and statements during the last year or so has offered two contradictory explanations for why he was going to invade Ukraine. And it, it wasn't completely apparent until last week, really, that he was actually going to launch a full invasion and conquest attempt of Ukraine. So on one hand, he was promoting this idea that there were either NATO or US or CIA or what he would call neo-Nazi forces trying to use Ukraine to attack Russia and that the Russian military needed to move in across Ukraine's eastern border and neutralize these forces, give Ukraine back its independence from NATO or whatever it was that he was promoting. I should note these ideas are are not based in reality. Hmm. But a second idea that he was also promoting, sometimes in the same speeches and declarations, was the idea that there needed to be a military action against Ukraine to bring it back into Russia.
0: Hmm. And he's also been using this term anti-Russia. What, what does he mean by that exactly when he, when he says that?
1: That is some of the language that he uses In this second concept, starting maybe a year ago, he started referring to Ukraine as the anti-Russia or an anti-Russia, by I guess which he meant it's a place by definition opposed to Russia. And and to understand the motives behind that, you need to go back to 2014 when we had this huge public uprising in Ukraine. In 2010, Ukraine's highly contested election had put a pro-Putin party and leader into power. It's not clear that it was fairly won, but it was eventually accepted, which worked fine until he tried to remove Ukraine from a distance steps program to start the process of being ready to join the European Union eventually. Mm-hmm. And the Ukrainian people really did not like this. There was a huge uprising against this withdrawal from the European Union. Now it's worth stressing, there's nothing contradictory in there. There's no reason why Ukraine couldn't be attached to the countries to its West and, and also loyal to Russia. So the only reason why this protest received a hostile reaction from Russia was because Vladimir Putin personally did not like it. So we had the so-called Euromaidan protests and a violent repression of them in Ukraine in 2014. And then we had Russia's first invasion of Ukraine and takeover of Crimea and creation of conflict in the eastern regions of Donbass. So this idea of anti-Russia comes out of this. It's a place that, that should be part of Russia in Putin's mind, but for some reason is opposed to all the things that he wants. So therefore it's like, it's like kryptonite. He's Superman and whoever is governing Ukraine is his undoing.
0: And Doug, you've actually interviewed
1: Putin before.
0: Can you tell us what that was like and what he was like?
1: Well, in a way, it was a precursor to what we're seeing now. And it really was the beginning of Vladimir Putin's outright hostility to Europe. It was 2008. And I had an opportunity to have dinner with Putin at his dacha with a number of other journalists And during that dinner, which took place at midnight, he explicitly said he was going to re-aim Russia's nuclear arsenal at the capitals of European Union countries. And this was his angry response to NATO countries having placed radar bases in Poland and the Czech Republic. That's
0: quite a response.
1: It was shocking at the time. And it showed that he's willing to use threats of nuclear warfare, even if remote and indirect threats, as part of normal diplomatic processes. Now, by 2008, he had crushed a lot of freedoms within Russia. He had shut down a lot of independent media. He had caused a lot of opposition candidates to disappear or die or no longer run for office. So there weren't a lot of illusions about, about Putin in 2008. But this is the first time that the idea that NATO is not just a collective defense bloc, but is somehow an overt threat to Russia, had reached the world to the point that he was willing to make vague nuclear threats.
0: Let's bring it back to the, the current justifications that you had mentioned there, Doug. So Putin's kind of had two reasons, essentially, for why he's taking this action in Ukraine. I wonder how people in Russia have reacted to those justifications. Does Putin have support from his own people?
1: I I would give that a qualified yes, but the qualification is that even today, a lot of Russians do not know that there is a war in Ukraine that is killing a lot of Russians. The Kremlin has banned the use of the words war and attack and invasion from any print or broadcast journalism discussing what must by law be known as a special military operation. In Ukraine, to the point of shutting down the two most independent printed broadcast media outlets in Russia. So, the newspaper Novaya Gazeta, which is the best newspaper in Russia, and, and it's one that's that's pretty independent, as mm-hmm. well as Echo Moscow, which which is a national radio network, and shutting down things like Twitter.
0: And this is the government shutting them down, essentially.
1: And I should say, Novaya Gazeta was is not fully shut down. Its articles about the war have been removed, and. The new law against what the law calls fake news or or news that is unfriendly to the Kremlin has meant that a lot of news outlets have had to shut down. BBC's Russia service had to shut down all of its operations within Russia. It doesn't mean it stopped broadcasting into Russia. It's quite popular there. But they have a large staff within Russia who are unable to report.
0: I believe CBC's actually done the same. I
1: think CBC in Canada has also had to stop having its Russian staff operate there. So we're back to a sort of Cold War era where people are relying on samizdat, on underground media and voices and those sort of things. And much of the internet is now controlled and censored within Russia. A lot of Russians who are not politically active or plugged in probably don't have any idea that there's an actual full-scale war of national conquest taking place in Ukraine. You see small protests against it, in good part because they've so outlawed protests at this point that anybody on the street protesting, including we've seen old grannies in walkers, gets dragged into a van and Mm -hmm. taken to jail.
0: What are we to make of this pushback, however small, that is happening in the country?
1: It's hard to say at this point because we don't know where it's going to go. And most importantly, we don't know how Vladimir Putin is going to respond to growing unpopularity of the war. Before, you could have other somewhat authoritarian-minded democratic leaders in Europe, such as Hungarian President Viktor Orban, openly supporting Putin. This war has shifted that. Those guys have turned against Putin's war, if not the man himself. So he's isolated. He does not have support in the world. Even China is, not willing to fully support this action.
0: This kind of isolation that's happening of Putin, does that make him more dangerous?
1: We don't know where he's going to go. The view of the Kremlinologists, political and military analysts, is that Putin remains rational. There isn't some mental health issue that's causing him to lose track of of self-interest and rationality. And they'll act in a calculated way. That doesn't mean he won't do horrific things and push through limits. Invading another country, which hasn't been done on a full-scale level this century by anybody, is walking past any lines of fully, generally understood rules of international engagement. But we have to remember, he has done these things in other places. So the weapons of mass destruction barrier has been passed in other wars that Vladimir Putin supported. Would he use nuclear arms? Most people think he wouldn't, <laughs> which isn't, isn't all that reassuring. But the fact that he's threatened to, that, that also crosses a line that, okay, yes, he did when he sat down with me and those other journalists, or at least threatened to re-aim them. It's very different from saying he's placed his nuclear arsenal on a special form of alert during an active war.
0: soldiers has Russia lost? Do we have a sense of that?
1: I don't have a count right now, and you get very different numbers. I mean, r- official Russian reports put it in the hundreds, and official re- Ukrainian reports put it in the many thousands. But it's a lot, and it's going to be felt. And one thing you need to know about Russian military, it's viewed as within Russia as not so much a profession as something that your sons do for a while. And for a long time, the Russian military was sort of a welfare system. It had many, many hundreds of thousands of soldiers in it, but the international view was that most of those soldiers were doing their terms of military service as a way to keep unemployed young men off the streets. Putin famously modernized it at the end of the 2000s, in the beginning of the last decade, and it was the view of many military analysts that the military had begun to shift from being this sort of welfare service to being a more professional military. And what we've seen during this conflict is that, yeah, there may be some elite units, but the the bulk of the army remains. This group of young men who really don't know what they're fighting for and are not particularly well-organized or led, who sent messages back to their mothers saying, I had no idea I was going to be in Ukraine and my life's in danger now. I don't don't know who I'm supposed to shoot at because these people look like my cousin. So there's, there's a real crisis within the military emerging.
0: I want to, I guess, take this idea of public perception a little bit further then, because Uh, In addition to what they're hearing about military, there's also, of course, the the sanctions that much of the West has now put on Russia, devaluing the ruble, the currency, limiting the ability of people to travel, uh, blaming Putin, sanctioning Putin and a bunch of uh, people close to him as well. Do we have a sense of if these actions are actually going to make a difference in how people in Russia perceive the war?
1: One of the big changes that's happened under Vladimir Putin is that Russia has become more of a middle class country. To own a car and apartment and try to put their kids into post-secondary education and all those sort of things. So you ha- you do have a lot of Russians who for example have their mortgages on their apartment Provided by a bank in Germany or some country in the European Union who rely on the swift banking network to make those mortgage payments and that sort of thing. Or who regularly buy IKEA furniture or Apple products or things like that. So the sanctions are going to hit the Russian middle class in a way that they haven't before. Previous sanctions, including the powerful sanctions initiated by countries like Canada after the 2014 invasion, were aimed at elites. This is different because we are hitting the Russian middle class. So how are they going to respond when they realize they can't move their money, even make their mortgage payments, that they can't buy the stuff they're used to buying? There's two ways people can respond. One is by blaming the people who are putting the sanctions on them. And there is a risk that middle-class Russians will say, ah, Putin was right. This is a NATO-European Union plot against Russia because these NATO and the European Union are making my lives miserable. But the other possibility is that they'll blame Putin for having brought this toll upon them. So I think whether the sanctions and banking cutoffs and so on serve to turn ordinary Russians further against the West or against Vladimir Putin really depends on how they're implemented and how, what messaging we deliver as to how to get out of the sanctions during the next days and weeks.
0: How will we know if or when Russians change their opinion of the war? What's what's something that you'll be looking for?
1: I think what we need to be looking at is a lack of earnest voices in support of the war. So we're, we're going to start seeing a change in the next few days because ordinary Russians know you can't get stuff, you can't travel. And the number of people who know somebody who got the email saying that their son had died is going to grow. And I don't think we should be optimistic that any of these sanctions are gonna create a regime change, right? They are not going to cause the Russian people to rise up against Vladimir Putin and overthrow him and cause a new democratic leader to come in in russia and that's not the purpose of the sanctions anyway they're designed to bring about a a cessation of outright military hostilities in ukraine so right now the psychology around sanctions among western governments is we have to do this because we can't mount a full-scale military operation because for very obvious reasons having nuclear powers in direct conflict is not something that the world wants right now so i think the thinking around sanctions was that 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 this is all we have shy of bombing moscow and we are economically bombing moscow i think those governments do need to step back and say okay now that the urgency of imposing them is passed let's start talking about off-ramps let's start talking about things that might cause the Russian people to recognize that these sanctions can end if certain things happen.
0: Doug, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thank you. It's a great pleasure.
0: That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show and Michal Stein edited this episode.